All right, we're looking at the regular principle. Uh, just one last time here, tie up some loose ends. Um, I dealt with this 30 years ago, and I, I don't like to deal with the thing I've done before, but uh, this is different. I've reworked some of this. Uh, first, we're going to look at strain. We're just looking at passages that teach the regular principle, tying up our loose ends, and I believe this is number five. What does it mean to be reformed? <clears throat> and... Uh, I'm going to look at uh, Leviticus 10, 1 to 2. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire on it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, the incident of Nadab and Abihu, and like I said, I've, I've preached on this before, um, and their use of strange or unauthorized fire is one of the clearest examples of the regular principle in all of Scripture. As ordained officers who stood between the people and God in the Old Covenant ceremonial worship, <clears throat> the priest had a special responsibility to teach the people complete submission and obedience unto God. They came to the part of the service that required them to burn the special holy incense unto God. Their sin was identified as offering profane or strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them, verse 1. Now, the word strange or profane, which is zair, refers to something unauthorized by God. The fact that it was not prescribed made the act unlawful, unholy, and sinful. Simply the fact that it wasn't authorized. The text makes the point crystal clear by adding, which he had not commanded them. <clears throat> in other sections of scripture we learn that the incense used was a prescribed recipe designed by God for a holy purpose and there's no indication that they used the wrong incense the problem was that they did not take the fire or the coals from the altar to set the incense alight it says strange fire it doesn't say strange incense and it would not be easy for them to make strange incense because the frankincense and the different things used to make incense were super expensive and hard to come by it's clearly strange fire in Leviticus 6.13 we learn that the priests were required to keep the fire on the altar burning perpetually it was never allowed to go out it always had to be kept burning in Leviticus 16, 12 to 13, we are told that only fire from the altar is to be used to burn the holy incense on the Day of Atonement. The procedure is described in Numbers 1646. <clears throat> fire from the altar is placed on the censer, made out of metal. Then the holy incense is dropped onto the special holy altar fire. It's, they didn't have incense like we have today where you light the incense and it's got chemicals in it to keep it burning. The fire on the altar held a special significance because this fire had originated from heaven and it come down upon the altar. So God set fire from heaven onto the altar and then they, the Levites were responsible to keep that fire burning perpetually. The holy fire and the incense cloud it produced pointed the people to the Christ to come for the cloud of incense, <coughs> we are told, would cover the mercy seat on the testimony so that the high priest would not die. 
it was the incense, the, the smoke was interposition between the priest and the mercy seat. In addition, when Moses ordered Aaron to burn incense and make atonement to stem God's judgment against the people's rebellion, and this is from Numbers 1646, he said, Take a censer, put fire in it from the altar, put incense on it, and take it to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord. So the cloud of incense forms a dense cloud and covers the people. The fire from heaven points to Christ, who gave himself as a sacrifice to God, and the incense shows us Christ's perfect submission. I mean, intercession. Inter, Christ interposes himself between God's wrath and, our, and, and the people. So the symbolism, if you don't use the fire from the altar, you, you basically mess up the symbolism of Christ. So the whole point of the narrative is to show us that God's ministers are to obey the law promptly and exactly without adding their own eyes to worship at all. Remember, all they did was they made up, they took fire that wasn't authorized fire. <clears throat> the severity of their judgment indicates that Yahweh wants the covenant people to learn a crucial lesson about approaching God in worship. The lesson is not to add or detract from what the Lord has commanded. There's nothing in the law of God forbidding men to use other kinds of fire to light the incense. It just simply says you have to use this fire when burning the holy incense. Because there doesn't need to be other laws. That's the beauty of the regular principle. This is what I tell you to do. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Don't add to it. Don't detract from it. If you just stick to what I tell you, Worship will stay pure and entire. The moment you stop doing that, you're going to start adding human traditions. When Yahweh says to use fire from the altar, all other forms of fire are automatically excluded. God is teaching the people what happens in sola scriptura or the regular principle is ignored. When God says, I want you to sing inspired songs to me in worship that have to be written by prophets, he doesn't need to have a thing in there saying you're forbidden to write your own hymns. It's automatically excluded. Anti-regulativists attempt to circumvent the clear teaching of this passage in a few different ways. And we go back to people like Doug Wilson and Steve Schlissel. Steve Schlissel especially wrote an article and he saw, oh, the problem wasn't strange fire at all. That's not the problem. The problem was they burned strange insects. But, of course, it doesn't say that. One is to argue that the problem was not strange fire, but unauthorized incense. And using strange incense is expressly condemned in Exodus 30, verse 9. But the problem with this view is that the text says specifically, strange fire, not strange incense. The Jews know the difference between incense and the coals that were to set the incense alight. <coughs> in addition... Their judgment, which was being devoured by fire from God, verse 2, corresponds to their sin of using unauthorized fire. They weren't destroyed by smoke. They were destroyed by fire. Moses tells Aaron that by using unauthorized fire, they had disregarded the holiness of Yahweh, verse 3. So they worshipped without faith as humanists by following their own devices. 
Another attempt to circumvent the meaning of this passage is to see something bad in the intentions of Nadab and Abihu. Once again, you have to ignore the text to do this. It says they were killed for offering strange, using strange fire. Uh, you have to ignore that and look for other motives. We are told that they must have been drunk or they must have been insincere. But such a speculative theory explicitly contradicts the reason given to us by the Holy Spirit, which he had not commanded them. That was their problem. Verse 1. Their offense was violating the regular principle. They worshipped in a manner not prescribed by God. Now, even though their own fire was not expressly forbidden, it was still sinful because they went beyond God's command. Perhaps they thought, well, who cares where the fire comes from? Our fire will work perfectly fine. No one's going to even notice the difference. No one's going to notice. But Yahweh took notice and was highly offended for these men placed their human autonomy, their wisdom, their pragmatism over God's express will. And that's the problem with violating the regular principle. It's an act of pride. It's an act of humanism. It's an, it's an Arminian form of worship. God killed them to make that example of how he views will worship or humanistic worship. So the lesson here is unmistakable and we must be willing to hear it. The holy God of Scripture not only refuses to accept human innovations, inventions, and traditions in worship, but he hates also such worship with a holy hatred. God hates it. You think Christmas is great. You have your little Christmas service. You light your candles and you get out your decorations and your greenery and your evergreens. You think, how wonderful. This is so wonderful. The kids love it. We're going to give them gifts. And we got some, uh, some cake. But God hates all of it because it's not commanded. The fact that Nadab and Abihu had a priestly authority only behind Moses and Aaron when they went up on the mount in Exodus 19, Moses and Aaron were followed by Nadab and Abihu at a certain distance. That fact that they had that authority did not give them authority to devise rites and ceremonies. It only rendered their judgment more severe, for they were more responsible as God's stewards to keep worship pure and entire for the next generation. Their job was purely ministerial, not creative. They were supposed to be extra careful and diligent in their duties, so covenant faithfulness would continue generationally. So their sin can be characterized by the following elements. A. They lacked a due sense of the majesty, glory, and holiness of Yahweh. It is God's holy majesty and amazing glory that renders our approach to him to be only as he authorizes. And that's an inexcusable oversight. God is infinitely holy. Why do you think we have to approach God solely through Christ? Well, not only do we have to approach God solely through Christ, we have to worship God solely as he authorizes in his word, because he is so holy. Number two. They lack the proper sense of their own sinfulness, unworthiness, vileness, and corruption of nature to devise modes of worship to an approach an infinitely holy God. C. They possessed a prideful, carnal, worldly boldness in assuming to themselves the right to invent sacred duties. Our God is a consuming fire, and we are rotten sinners saved solely by grace. 
Once we understand this truth, there should be a religious awe connected to our approach to God and worship. Our worship must be solely through Christ, solely through his appointed means. Holding a high ecclesiastical position in the church cannot make what is unholy holy. All will worship is a form of sacrilege in that finite sinful fools take upon themselves the sole prerogative of a thrice holy sovereign God. That's why this is such a serious issue. This is why this is an issue people don't want to talk about. This is an issue the church doesn't want to teach about because people love their human traditions and people don't want to be convicted of sin. And it is a serious sin. The implication of this passage for today is obvious. All elders, ministers, and assemblies should be watchmen against any innovations coming into the church. As the Belgian Confession says so clearly, quote, we ought to rest satisfied with the ordinances which Christ and the apostles have taught us, Article 35. <coughs> Therefore, continuing, quote, we reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God, end of quote. The overseers of the flock are not to defend human traditions and make clever excuses for sin. They are to make sure that only what is authorized by Scripture is practiced. <coughs> we should thank God for our heritage as Presbyterians, that the first and generation of Presbyterians, the first and second Reformations, were absolutely faithful in this area. They were faithful. They were diligent and faithful in rejecting all human traditions in worship. They covenanted their great Reformation attainments, 1580, 1638, the Second Reformation, and of course the Westminster Standards, 1647, and then again it's 49. But what they did, their great faithfulness has been largely squandered and rejected by generations in love with their own innovations and corruptions. I'll never forget, years ago, R.C. Sproul and I think Boyce, a bunch of these big shots were involved, and they put a, they wrote a book, Whatever Happened to the Reformation? And they focused on bad things evangelicals were doing, but they completely ignored how the modern Presbyterian churches have, have rejected most of the attainments of the Reformation. Yeah, they're still five-point Calvinists. They still sort of have Presbyterian church government, although they have all kinds of crazy committees and commissions. So they, it's more like a bureaucracy. But worship? They have nothing to do with the Puritans anymore. They've forsaken the Reformation. May God bring us a new Reformation, a return to our blessed covenants. And then let's look at another passage. Here's another one. We'll just, we'll just be brief. Autonomous worship condemned Jeremiah 7.31, and also it's repeated in Jeremiah 19.5. <clears throat> and they have built the high places of Tophet, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Now this passage is crucial in understanding how Yahweh himself analyzes and criticizes false worship and syncretism among the covenant people. It's a very interesting passage. Now, obviously, the sacrificing of one's own children in the flames to Molech at Tophet is rank idolatry and murder. 
murder of the worst kind, murdering your own children to a false god. To do such things is clearly contrary to specific moral commands. There's no question about that. Yet God's own critique of the situation does not focus on these obvious positive violations, but rather on the underlying source of the idolatry. What is the source of the problem? Well, Judah was worshiping in a manner that did not originate in God's heart or proceed from his command. That's exactly what the text says. Yahweh goes to the very heart of the problem, which is human autonomy or violating the regular principle. If you had obeyed the regular principle, you would not have degenerated into this gross idolatry, this humanism. Instead of putting into practice the worship that God had instituted, they walked in the counsels and imagination of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. It's Jeremiah 7.24. By ignoring Sola Scriptura, Israel set on a path of deep de- degradation as their human autonomy looked to the pagan culture around them for ideas. <coughs> People don't make up things in a vacuum. You know, musically, for example, you, know, the, you wouldn't have had the Beatles without what went before the Beatles. You, you had to have Chuck Berry and Skiffle and all that sort of stuff. We, we function in a culture. And if, and if you're not going directly to Scripture, if you're not getting your ideas from God in the area of worship, you're going to man. The path of autonomy led to unspeakable offenses against Yahweh's holiness. Israel could have nipped false worship and idolatry in the bud simply by demanding biblical proof for every part or element of their worship. That's all they had to do. Where's the proof? Now, is it, elders get upset about this, but is it wrong for you to ask for proof for a practice in church? That's part of the public worship. Is it wrong to ask for proof for that? And the answer is no. Not wrong. It's their duty to be able to prove everything they do in Scripture. Now, John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, writes this, and it's, it's, it's quite excellent. <coughs> God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them. Whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from the deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God has commanded no such thing, and that it never came into his mind. As though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew. (coughs) End of quote. This principle is the key to the Reformation of worship. It's the key. It's the secret. 
show me from Scripture. Prove it. it would, we'd have complete unity of worship among all Reformed churches if we just obeyed Scripture and took all the human additions away. We'd all be singing psalms, and we would not have musical instruments, which were Levitical, which had nothing to do with the synagogue worship. We'd all have unity of worship. Unity. We could have unity because we'd keep the man-made garbage out of the church. Syncretism would not allow to be. It would not allow to be allowed to gain a foothold in the church. And then we'll just let's give a New Testament example. We're going to go to Matthew. Matthew 15, 1 to 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? The Pharisees were the respected leaders of the Jewish people. They believed that they had the liberty to add to the commandments of God. The law of God did contain various ceremonial washings to signify the unclean becoming clean. The Pharisees simply added other washings to emphasize and supposedly perfect the law of Moses, to protect it, to fence it. There is no express commandment forbidding these ceremonial additions except the regular principle, Deuteronomy 4.2, 12.31, etc. So Jesus is saying these additions have no warrant from the word of God, we're not going to do it. We're just not going to do it. The Lord strongly rebuked the scribes and Pharisees for adding to God's law. Now, what happens when sinful men add rules and regulations to God's law? Well, eventually, man-made tradition replaces or sets aside the law of God. Matthew 15, 6, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. The ancient Christian church added its own rules and ceremonies to the worship of God and degenerated into the pagan and idolatrous Roman Catholic Church. If we do not draw the line regarding worship where God drives the line, then as history proves, the church will eventually degenerate into little better than a bizarre pagan cult. Christ's rebuke to the scribes and Pharisees applies today to virtually every so-called branch of the Christian church. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's Matthew 15, 8-9. Now, it's not an accident that the Holy Spirit chose a very innocuous, innocent-sounding tradition. Obviously, God does not view human additions as a light thing, as something that people should ignore. After all, if human additions are permissible in the religious sphere, what could be any more innocent, pragmatic, or practical than a simple hand-washing? Yet our Lord not only refused to submit to this man-made religious rite, but also strongly rebuked the Pharisees for adding a human rule to God's word. The washing of hands is a thing proper enough, and we would wish that it was done more often, just for the sake of cleanliness. But to alter it into a religious rite is wickedness, it is folly, it is sinful. And the disciples of Christ were well trained, for they knew that any human tradition, no matter how good and innocent, must not be complied with when it is given a religious significance and a status by man without warrant, without divine warrant. Note, 
illegal impositions, and this is uh, David Dixon, illegal impositions will be laid to the charge of those who support and maintain them, human traditions and worship, and keep them up, as well as those who first invented and enjoined them. Excuse me, that's Matthew Henry. Here's David Dixon. Antiquity and Fathers Without Scripture is the old charter of superstitious formulists. Hence learn that God in, in wisdom brings men's ceremonies to a dispute, and so to be refuted and condemned. That is Jesus, the strict regulativists, condemned this. Now, if he condemned hand washings, what do you think he thinks about things like Christmas and Easter, where paganism is mixed with Christianity? So Jesus is a champion of the regular principle. He rejects the most innocuous of religious traditions and also shows us how human traditions and laws drive out and thus set aside what God has condemned. Samuel Rutherford says this, this is from his book, The Divine Right of Church Government, Next Communication, etc. <clears throat> and when the Pharisees saw some of the disciples eat bread with unwashed hands, they found fault. The challenge is for an external emission of an outward observance, which may be seen with the eyes. Ergo, or therefore, these traditions are not condemned by Christ because they were contrary to God's word or impious, but in this, that they were contrary because they were not commanded. For in the external religious act of hand washings, there was no impiety of a wicked opinion objected to by Christ's disciples about the piety of these traditions, nor about any inward opinion. Nor is there any question between the Pharisees and the Lord's disciples whether the tradition of the elders should be esteemed the marrow and sum of all religion, as Vasquez saith. But only, Annette, external conformity with walking in the traditions of the elders or not walking as it is most clear in the text. It is true, Christ objected. They accounted more of the traditions of men, nor of God's commandments, as papists and formalists do. But that was not the state of the question between the, Christ, the disciples of Christ and the Pharisees. Number two, Christ rejected these traditions by an argument taken from the want of a lawful author, while he calls them precepts of men opposed to the commandment of God. End of quote. Christ's whole argument boils down to the fact that it wasn't commanded by God. I can't think of anything more innocent than a simple hand-washing. But the moment you give something a religious significance, and it's not commanded by God, Christ says, no way. And the apostles, no way, we're not going to do it. So instead of having your Christmas service, you should ask your elders, well, where's Christmas services in the Word of God? We don't see them celebrating a separate day for the birth of Christ in the Word of God. We're taught in the Word of God to celebrate the whole work of redemption every Lord's Day, every Sabbath. And then if the elders give you a hard time, you're in the wrong church. You should get out of there. Christmas is evil. It's wicked. People who oppose the regular principle often attempt to circumvent the obvious import of these passages by appealing to the context. And they argue that the example set forth by Christ in verses 4 and 5 of the person who follows a human tradition in order not to provide for his parents in old age, informs us that Christ only had negative traditions in mind. That is, traditions which nullified or set apart or contradicted the word of God. That's basically Slissel's argument. The problem with this confrontation, with this interpretation, is that it completely ignores verse 2, or the original confrontation, that elicited Jesus' response in verses 3 to 9. Jesus gives an example of why adding human traditions to God's word is wrong. Human requirements eventually displace God's word. And anyone with a knowledge of Judaism or a knowledge of Roman Catholicism knows that that is absolutely true. 
The fact that Christ gives us such an example does not detract at all from verse 2, where the most innocent and apparently harmless of human traditions, hand-washing, is regarded as totally inappropriate. How does washing one's hands contradict, violate, or set apart God's word? Jesus condemned the Pharisees for assuming, contrary to Scripture, that religious leaders have legislative authority in the church. They do not. They do not. They have no legislative authority. Now, they can term circumstantial matters. They can, they can determine, hey, you know, we think 11 o'clock is a good time to meet. We have a lot of people that work nights and, you know, they have to get up kind of late. So we, we, we decided 11 o'clock is the time we're going to meet. That's a circumstantial matter. That's not a matter of the content or, or, the, uh, the, or what is part of worship itself. When church leaders give themselves authority to invent out of their own imagination doctrines or commandments, <clears throat> the eventual result is declension and even apostasy. Note once again in verse 9, Jesus unequivocally condemns all human doctrines and commandments in religion. In vain! Do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men? And then further, the parallel passage in Mark chapter 7 settles the matter once and for all. Because in the Markian account, Jesus explicitly identifies the traditions that he condemns as including religious hand washings. Here's what it says, 6 to 9. He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. So what do we learn? It is all too easy to destroy the authority of God's word by addition, as by subtraction, by bearing it under human inventions, as by denying its truth. The whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, must be our rule of faith. Nothing added, and nothing taken away. Our Lord does not just condemn negative, bad, or contradictory human traditions, but all human traditions, without exception. And here's what Charles Spurgeon says, who's actually quite good about this in his commentary on Matthew. Religion based on human authority is worthless. We must worship the true God in the way of his own appointing, or we do not worship him at all. Doctrines and ordinances are only to be accepted when the divine word supports them, and they are to be accepted for that reason only. The most punctilious form of devotion is vain worship if it is regulated by man's ordinance apart from the Lord's own command. End of quote. So after briefly examining Christ's teaching in context, one can only conclude that the argument that our Lord is only condemning certain bad religious traditions rather than any and all human traditions is eisegesis of the worst sort. And then I'll, I'll end with this, we'll go ahead and end this, with a quote from the great Dutch theologian, Zacharias Ursinus, writing in the 1570s, first published in the 1580s. Quote, there are some who object to what we have said here and affirm in support of will worship that those passages we cited as condemning it speak only in reference to the ceremonies instituted by Moses and of the unlawful commandments of man, such as constitute no part of the worship of God and not of those precepts which have been sanctioned by the church and bishops and which commandeth nothing contrary to the word of God. But, 
excuse me, but that this argument is false may be proven by certain declarations connected with those passages of Scripture to which we have referred, which likewise reject those human laws, which upon their own authority prescribe anything in reference to divine worship which God has not commanded, although the thing itself is neither sinful nor forbidden by God. So Christ rejects the tradition which the Jews had in regard to washing of their hands, because they associated with it the idea of divine worship, although it was not sinful in itself, saying, not that which goes into the mouth defileth the man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth the man. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and platter, but within ye are full of extortion and excess. Matthew 15, 11, 23, 25. The same thing may be said of celibacy, and of the distinction of meats and days, which they call, well, of which he calls the doctrine of devils. Although in themselves they are lawful to the godly, as he in other places teaches, wherefore those things are also which are in themselves indifferent, which is neither commanded nor prohibited by God. If they are prescribed and done in, as in the worship of God, or if it is supposed that God is honored by our performing them, and dishonored by neglecting them, it is plainly manifest that the scriptures, in these and similar cases, condemns them. In other words, there's things that you can do that are just part of life, like washing your hands. You're working out in the garden, and your hands are filthy, and you wash your hands before you eat. That's a very good, wise thing to do. But the moment you bring it into the worship of God, and say that it's required because we say so, we're the bishops, or we're the elders, or we're the the synod or the, the local presbytery, and we say you have to do this, the moment you do that, you turn it into something sinful and you have to disobey it, just as Christ and the apostles did. Calvin says, Christ has faithfully and accurately given the meaning of that in vain God is worshipped when the will of men is substituted in the room of doctrine. By these words, all kinds of will worship, ethelothraskia, uh, as Paul calls it in Colossians 2.23, are plainly condemned. For as we have said, since God chooses to be worshipped in no other way than according to his own appointment, he cannot endure new modes of worship to be devised. <clears throat> as soon as men allow themselves to wander beyond the limits of the word of God, the more labor and anxiety they display in worshipping him, the heavier is the condemnation which they draw upon themselves. For by such inventions, religion is dishonored. Now we'll stop there. I have a lot more, but you, you can go on sermon audio, I have sermons on these things. But I, I'm telling you, Christ was offended by the requiring the worship, washing of hands. Can you imagine what he thinks about Christmas services? Can you imagine what he thinks about unauthorized uh, songs written by men, by sinners, not inspired by the Holy Spirit, or this use of all kinds of musical instruments in public worship for entertainment purposes? When in the Old Testament, it was ceremonial. You had to be a Levite to play a certain instrument. They didn't have pianos and basses and things in the Old Testament. They had certain instruments that God designed for certain Le Levitical families. It's obvious that it's unbiblical for these things to be introduced now. But people aren't interested in Reformation. They're interested in keeping their human traditions because they're in love with their sin. So let us all repent. Let us return to our covenants. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so amazingly simple and so amazingly wise and true. We thank you for it. Help us to put it into practice. Let us have another reformation so that we could go to churches and our children could have good churches all over the place. For we don't have that right now at all. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>